Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Leonardo Lacascio of Winebow on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you, and happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Why'd you pick Winebow as the name? Picked Winebow because uh, we needed to come up with a name for the corporation. And in those days, I had two partners, and uh, everybody wanted to have their name on the corporate identity. So it was something like an accounting firm or a law firm or, you know, some kind of a professional corporation, and nobody really liked that feeling. So eventually, we started uh, working on a concept, and the concept was a wine rainbow, meaning a big selection, a lot of different colors colors for flavors, uh, and therefore a rainbow. So wine rainbow was a little bit too long, and so we decided on winebow. So it was Peter Matt and Bob Haas originally? Those were my two original partners, yes. And how did you meet them? I mean, how did that come about? Well, as I was uh, uh, deciding to get into the wine business, I was still working at uh, Citibank and uh, got a hold of a beverage media and started calling, uh, cold calling, you know, various uh, distributors in New York to kind of size up what their interest level would be in a new line of uh, Italian wines. And uh, eventually I made contact uh, with a small distributor who was uh, uh, getting out of the business, but he had just been visited by Peter Matt, who wanted to be a broker. Peter was working at uh, Morel in those days and uh, was married to an Italian, spoke Italian fluently, had no real desire to be an importer, but he felt that he could make uh, a difference as a broker. So I called him, and uh, we got together and got to know each other and uh, decided to be partners. But there was a little uh, wrinkle, which is that in the meantime, he had also met uh, Bob Haas and had uh, some sort of an understanding with him that if he agreed to represent uh, Bob's wines uh, in uh, New York as a brand manager for vineyard uh, brands for vineyard brands then bob would uh, import uh, the italian wines that peter wanted to broker and distribute them nationally so we went to see bob in vermont and uh, explained to him that uh, we wanted to become partners and to become distributors in new york and new jersey uh, which was a change for him because he already had distributors but he kind of liked uh, the 
idea of two young guys, you know, really eager and ambitious getting into the business. And I, I remember him very well. He leaned back on his chair and he said, uh, so how much money did you invest? And we told him. And he said, how about if I invest the same amount and we become three-way partnership? So, of course, uh, I was ecstatic uh, because Bob already had such a fantastic uh, reputation. Plus, he was in the French wine business. He was in the California wine business, which in those days was just beginning. And so when we sealed that deal overnight, we went from being an obscure would-be importer of Italian wines. In, uh, we went from that to being a distributor of our own Italian wines, plus the Vineyard Brands book, plus uh, few other things that came along right away. And so in a very short period of time, Winebow became the new darling of uh, New York and New Jersey wine distributors. And that's 1980-1981. This was 1980-1981. That's correct. From the beginning, it sounds like you knew you wanted to not just import, but also distribute. Yes. Uh, I had uh, a very early reality check as I started uh, going around and visiting different distributors around the country. And uh, Granted, we had a very small book of Italian wines back then, but it was clear to me that it was going to be a real struggle to get uh, visibility and to get attention for a new, unknown, undercapitalized wine company, slugging it out you know, with people that have been doing this for a very long time. So eventually, that also kind of came together, and we have had national distribution now for a very long time. But I knew that the beginning was going to be a struggle. So my desire was to be a distributor wherever we could. And initially, because I was living in New Jersey and Peter was living in New York, we were a New York, New Jersey distributor. And then over time, we started adding distributors. First one was uh, Pennsylvania. And the second one was uh, Washington, D.C. And then from there, we went on uh, uh, a buying spree, if you will, much later in our, in our life and bought uh, distributors in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, and eventually in other states as well, to the point that Wymo today uh, self-distributes in 17 different states. And actually, it's no longer Wymo. It's called the Wymo Group today. So that really allows you to see it all the way through. Yeah. I think that uh, the biggest challenge in the wine business is at the distributor level. To give you an idea, 20 years ago, there were about 7,000 distributors of all sizes in the United States, and now there is about 700. So there has been a 90% loss factor in the available base of distributors. And at the same time, the universe that is served by these distributors has exploded. Uh, because licensees, both on-premise and off-premise, have grown significantly. And also the geographies that want to export wine to the United States have grown significantly. You know, when we started in 1980, there was precious little wine from Australia, almost no wine from New Zealand, very little from Chile, very little from Argentina, no wine from South Africa. There was actually an embargo on South Africa. Almost no wine from Eastern Europe virtually zero from Greece, and on and on and on. And now all those countries uh, are trying to gain a presence in the market. And so the number of uh, brands has exploded, whereas the distributor base has contracted by 90%. So you have this hourglass phenomena, you know, with all this uh, wine trying to come in with a very narrow distributor base going to a very large customer base. It's a bottleneck. It's a real, real bottleneck. And so we saw that 
sooner rather than later and decided that whenever there was an opportunity that made financial sense to become a distributor, we would do so. And that also, in, in part, uh, was dependent on how successful our distributors were in a given state. You know, we have no desire to become a distributor in markets where we're doing well on our imported wine, which has now grown to in- include Argentina, to include Chile, to include Austria, to include Germany, to include, you know, many different geographies. And therefore, it's a very full book. I mean, the Italian wines alone are about 65 states. And then by the time you add uh, Spain and Portugal and all the others that I mentioned, uh, we are around 150 estates, you know, that uh, that uh, we bring in. So it's a full book and uh, we need to have a productive and comfortable relationship with a distributor in order for this to work. The challenge of warehousing and shipping to the final destination and making the sale to the restaurant or retailer is as challenging as finding the wine and developing a relationship with the producer. I would say so. And um, actually, as a company like Winebow developed its own wine skills, the wine side got easier because we started getting a lot of people coming to us, even people of stature and people that were in the market already that wanted to change for the better. And what became a real challenge was the logistical part and the infrastructure part, you know, the warehousing, the trucking, the drivers and the systems and all of that. And the legalities in each state. The legalities have been uh, daunting because uh, we have 50 states and 50 different sets of uh, regulations. And we have a compliance department that employs two full-time people that do nothing other than keep us uh, compliant in uh, all the different markets in which we are either distributors or importers. And also to register labels and do all the other uh, legalities you know, that are involved if you want to be in the wine business. So it is it is a challenge for sure. And what's the difference between distributing in one market like New York and distributing nationwide? If you become a, a nationwide importer distributor, how does your business model change? Well, it changes a lot. Uh, it changes uh, dramatically actually in many different aspects. So let's start on uh, on the wine side. A distributor clearly sets its own priorities. So if you are importing your own wines and you manage to gain the share of mind of your own sales force, which is a lot easier to do than gaining the share of mind of somebody else's sales force, then you already start with a favorable uh, outcome. You have their attention already. You already have their attention. So that's on the wine side. You also have a chance to educate your own your own people on your wines. And education is something that uh, we strongly believe in as an organization. As a matter of fact, it's on the back of all of our business cards. It's part of our mission statement. And um, having an educated sales force selling the kind of wines that we're selling to me makes all the sense in the world. And often with distributors, especially large distributors, the salespeople don't have the time to really get educated. For them, it's a conflict because uh, they're busy selling uh, spirits and selling beer and selling whatever they're selling, you know, depending on the state. And so, you know, that that is also uh, a reason why it, it was appealing to us, you know, to be our own distributor. And finally, when you are in the import business and you sell as an importer to a distributor at a arm's length uh, transaction, you have prices that are often higher than 
what you have if you are your own distributor. At least you have the opportunity perhaps to offer an extra quantity discount or do a stronger sales incentive or educational program or you know whatever resources going to you're going to put into the brand it's entirely within the control of your own organization so i think for imported wines it's a highly favorable business strategy to work with an importer who is also is on distributor in a number of important states so you grew up in palermo i did and what was that like what was your family like i was uh, the oldest of uh, two sons and my father was an entrepreneur. He was into essential oils. I had a factory extracting from the skin of lemons, tangerines, oranges, the oil. And to give you an idea, it takes uh, roughly 2,500 pounds of lemons to extract a pound of lemon oil. So it's a very, very intense, expensive product. And People that buy it end up using it literally by the drop because it is uh, so incredibly full of fragrance and perfumes. So, in fact, it is used as one of the compounds and components in many different uh, blends that end up being a perfume. It's also used in making uh, fragrances that go into food items. It's used to flavor and perfume detergents and many, many other consumer products. So it's an export-driven business because mostly these customers are abroad. They're not certainly not in Sicily and for the most part not in uh, Italy. So I started traveling at a very young age because uh, I spoke a little bit of English, at least uh, enough to make myself understood and my dad did not. So even though I was only 16, 17, I was traveling with him and translating when he went to see his uh, customers. And that gave me a flavor for living in a different part of uh, the world and perhaps going to school in a different city and maybe even a different country. And eventually that is exactly what happened. I left Italy at the age of uh, 19 and went to college here in New York at uh, New York University, graduated in uh, international business and from there went to the university of uh, chicago to get an mba you arrive in new york what's new york like for you coming from palermo in the 70s yeah the early 70s uh that i mean the world trade center had not begun construction yet soho was a wasteland literally uh before wall street between Washington Square and Wall Street, there was uh, a very big no man's land where uh, it was even dangerous to venture there at, uh, at it night. It still is if you don't want to spend money. You know? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Got to hold on to your wallet either way. You know? uh, well, in those days, it was also physically uh, dangerous. So as a student, you get put into a dorm. I had uh, a really nice apartment at a address uh, that... Uh, was the envy of all my friends back in Palermo, which was one Fifth Avenue. Yeah, I know exactly where that is. That's yeah, cool. Right. The, in those days, it was a dorm for New York University. Today is a luxury condominium. So it was a large apartment, and I had an Indonesian roommate and two black power students who had changed their names to Swahili and uh, were more interested in politics than they were in studying and would have uh, all night jamming sessions with their drums and their friends and all of that. So, you know, for a 
young boy coming from Palermo to be in the middle of all this uh, craziness. It was uh, it was something, but uh, it also helped me to start understanding the city and the tremendous diversity that is in uh, New York and gain an appreciation for all these different faces of uh, the city, if you will. So I would say that... Uh, Schooling aside, it was very productive for me on a human level. You know, Palermo, especially back then, was not the most cosmopolitan city on the map. And uh, I think I needed that injection of cosmopolitanism, you know, that I gained here in New York. You originally went into the finance world working for McKinsey. I worked for uh, uh, McKinsey, but before McKinsey, I worked for a multinational company right out of a business school called uh, Rockwell International. Lived in Pittsburgh for three years. And then they wanted to start sending me overseas and take advantage of my languages and international background. That seems like a natural fit. It was a natural fit. And frankly, at the very beginning, it was my own plan. But then I started uh, really growing fond of living in the United States. I did not feel that it was the right time for me to uh, start moving back to Europe. And so uh, I received this offer from uh, McKinsey and decided to take it and uh, work with them for a couple of years uh, on different consulting assignments. One big one that I remember was for Avianca, the airline of uh, Colombia, which in those days was called Avianunca because in, the planes never arrived. <laughs> they were always so late. But uh, it was, um, you know, it was a tremendous way to get exposure to a number of companies and number of industries and understand how the business world uh, uh, works. And uh, from McKinsey, I was uh, recruited by Citibank, worked in their um, credit card uh, division. And uh, banking in those days was not what it is today. If you can imagine, banks were limited to state uh, charters. You know, there was no nationwide banking. This was still a consequence of the Great Depression and all the regulations that were put in place back then. So the regulations were calling not only for uh, uh, separation between commercial banking and investment banking, but they were also limiting the scope and the size of banks by limiting them to a state. But everybody knew that this was going to change eventually, and uh, Citibank decided to issue a lot of credit cards so that there would be a contact with people in many other states so that when eventually the regulations would be changed, that the relationships would be in place and it would be easier to attract them into a bank that eventually they would set up or acquire in a different state. And in fact, that is exactly That's what, happened. what happened. Yeah. yeah. But I remember one uh, direct mail campaign that we did in those days, uh, which is probably to this day, if not the largest, one of the largest and most successful solicitations of in the credit card business of new customers. Citibank gained over 2 million customers nationwide in many, many different states. So if you can imagine all these relationships beginning to fall into place well before the regulations on national banking got uh, changed and eventually lifted. Because the 80s is kind of when people started to use plastic, right? I mean, that basically is a normal thing. Yeah. I would say that um, uh, in the United States was already reasonably developed. Uh, in Italy, certainly was not. Italy... We're talking well into the 90s before credit cards became widely accepted and widely used. You decide to make a career change, and what precipitates that? What, what, what's going on that you decide to get out of finance? 
Well, he wasn't getting out of finance so much. He was getting out of corporate life. I, I had a pretty good idea uh, by that time of what it would take to really be successful in, uh, in a corporate environment in the United States. And uh, quite frankly, I was successful at uh, Citibank. I was a young vice president of uh, the bank. I was barely 30 when I was uh, promoted and uh, was beginning to have access to a lot of uh, very attractive uh, perks. And I could see how that career was going to go and what would be required to make it successful. And while this was not unappealing, I also felt an urge. I felt two urges, really. One was to kind of be faithful to my roots and be an entrepreneur like my father was and my grandfather was. And uh, at the same time, I was feeling a very strong pull to work with a product that was more physical than financial products. You know, financial products are intellectually stimulating and challenging, but it was hard for me not be able to hold one in my hand and look at it or smell it or touch it. You know, I wanted something that the product itself was more of a of an experience, a physical experience. And so I started looking around and uh, asking myself what I was really passionate about or could be passionate about. And in the end, uh, it came down to two things. Uh, wine was one and the other one was uh, ceramics, which to this day are a big interest of mine. I like pottery. Pottery, yeah. yeah. I like to buy it and collect it and give it as presents in different parts of the world. And I have fairly extensive uh, collection. So I could see myself becoming an importer of pottery made in different places. But eventually it it became wine. And uh, the reason I settled on wine is because I became attracted by the people who I met in those early days. People that came from many different walks of life Farmers with big calluses on their hands, um, successful business people who decided to diversify and invest in uh, vineyards and uh, have have a winery. Uh, so you you would be exposed to a large array of different people, and I found that diversity attractive and appealing. It sounds like you really thought it through for what the market needed, what might work long-term, and what you wanted to do with your own life. But it also sounds like you really admired your dad's example. I did. Uh, I admired the ability that he had to work very hard for even long periods of time and then turn it off and go on vacation with his family without having to you know, stick to a two-week uh, yearly vacation schedule or to have to negotiate with uh, different levels of an organization and so on. So I found that that freedom, you know, very liberating. Uh, and in fact, it pretty much reflects what happened, you know, in, in, in my own life. I had very long spells of uh, work, work, work 24-7. But eventually, as I started to have children and have a family, uh, we also took family vacations and I was able to turn it off for uh, some period of time, a week, ten days, two weeks, you know, whatever I could, uh, I could manage, and uh, my children were exposed at an early age to different parts of the world uh, in that way, and also because my home was uh, uh, always open to winemakers and. 
people in the wine business from all over the world. And the kids would come down for breakfast and literally find themselves uh, sitting at the table with somebody who spoke German one day and French another day and Italian a lot of times and so on. So t they became accustomed, you know, to having diversity around the house and became comfortable with that. And I think that has helped them in their own lives as well. They're incredibly curious and uh, interested people, young people. So what were the early days like at Weinbow? What was it like in the office and doing your job? And Well, first of all, there was not really an office. Uh, there was my home. And for the first five years, because I had young children at the time, I felt that I did not want to have the additional stress of commuting somewhere and uh, was working very long hours. And I wanted to do that uh, from home to maximize you know, the time. Uh, companies started growing very fast from day one. So after five years, we had 13 people working out of my house in Teaneck, New Jersey. My garage uh, was a large garage, was for three cars, was um, turned into an office for eight people. And then I had some extra bedrooms and those became the office of the controller and you know the purchasing agent and so on. And uh, that lasted until my neighbors decided that it was okay for them to have uh, their doctor's office or dentist office or a legal practice or accounting practice in their own home, but it was not okay for me to have a wine company uh, with people parking their cars in my driveway. And so they took me to the planning board and I had to ask for a variance and the planning board said that I had to go and look for a legitimate office space and an eventually found it in Hohokus, which became our home for the next 25 years. It must have been interesting to have conversations about the Italian wine market in the United States in the 80s, because so much was growing with it, restaurant-wise, product-wise, and at the same time, there's a huge shift away from white to red, right, in the market. There was a huge shift from white to red. When I started, I remember the first uh, metrics that I saw was that white wine was um, almost five times as big in terms of consumption as red wine was. People drinking like Suave and things drinking like that. Drinking Suave, Chardonnay started to become big. It became fashionable for people to go to a bar or to a restaurant and say, give me a glass of Chardonnay. And then Sauvignon Blanc got added to, to the mix and eventually Pinot Grigio and so on. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, white wine consumption back then. And then, uh, as it often happens, you know, when people take an interest in wine, they start experimenting and they find that red wine has more complexity than uh, white wine, usually. And also... Uh, Spoken like a true Italian, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Palermo! <laughs> well, in Italy, we drink a lot of both, both a lot of white and a lot of red. But, you know, then the French paradox came that uh, showed that the French people, despite the incredible amount of uh, butter and cream that they eat uh, don't have as much uh, cholesterol problem as uh, other countries and other populations. And uh, the single discriminating factor that prevented that from happening was found to be red wine. So that fact got a lot of publicity, as well as... Um, a famous tasting that happened in Paris. It was a blind tasting that uh, Steven Spurrier did where California wines bested very well-known French wines. And most of the judges were French and they got 
their vote to be California as opposed to France. She was blind. So, you know, it was a very, very honest uh, tasting and that got a lot of play and a lot of publicity and it got people enthusiastic about wine. And also, you know, taste was changing. The attention that people were giving to uh, what they were eating and drinking started to really shift and, and change. Uh, I remember the days of the three martini lunch. I do. I mean, I, I was in the business world back then. And I don't know how people went back to work after that. And then got home and would have one or two or three Cosmopolitan for dinner. That's what they mean by Black Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back then. Back yeah. then, yeah. So, you know, um, from there to understanding that wine was a much lighter and more tasteful alternative that especially went much better with food. It was not that long of a, of a road, you know, to, to traverse, you know, and eventually people started to real, really get interested and then it became fashionable to drink wine. Fashion has changed, of course. You know, it was white, then it was red. Now rosé is making a big splash and a big comeback. Uh, and, and it's fine. I mean, you know, as a consumer, which is first and foremost what I am, I don't like to drink the same wine or even the same color uh, this, uh, every day. And I drink wine every day, you know, with all my meals. I want to change it up, you know, and I want, I want to explore different countries and different, different varietals, different vintages and whatnot. And I think, you know, people that even minimally get interested in wine, start having some of the same reactions, you know? So wine became big. And today the industry is not even recognizable from what it was when I started in 1980. But Italy became big at the same time, right? Mediterranean yeah. diet and yeah. people looking for more Italian products. I mean, I think you've mentioned to me how when you started, there was so much less Italian products that are now taken for granted. Even the things that you would not believe if you were born in the 90s, you would not believe that fresh mozzarella was not available in this country. You would not believe that espresso was not popularly consumed. You would not believe that mineral water was not everywhere in every single restaurant. But that, those are the facts, you know, and they were the facts when I started in 1980. And all of that eventually changed and, and shifted and people got really interested in the Mediterranean diet. It's flavorful. It's healthy. It's not expensive. You know, you can cook a delicious dish of pasta for very little money. And, you know, at the same time, other food uh, like uh, red meat, for example, uh, was shown to have, to cause problems. You know, if you consume it in excess, a lot of people don't want to be just vegetarian. So, you know, the Mediterranean diet made all the sense in the world. And uh, more and more people traveled to Europe and to Italy in particular. They liked what they experienced there. And as they came back, not only to the East Coast or the West Coast, but every place in between, they wanted to have an opportunity to have the same experience all over the country, you know. So now you cannot go to any mid-size or even small-size American city and not have at least one or two good Italian restaurants. And, you know, the market for Italian wines has always been strong and growing. The only hiccup that we had was really not due to the wines, but to the fact that for a while the dollar was so low. If you remember, it reached uh, uh, 160 against the euro, and today it's 110. So those are very, very large differences that end up creating much more expensive uh, products. And for a while, there was some pushback 
not just on Italian wines, but on all imported uh, wines. But eventually things normalized like they always do, and uh, Italy went back to being a very, very strong uh, presence in the Italian wine business. But it must have been a challenge for you to say, like, hey, Italian wine, it's not all straw-covered bottles. And, you know, what was it like to try to build a, a more middle or luxury image for Italian wine? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of work, and it was, uh, and it was a big challenge. But also remember that um, when I started, a bottle of Barolo would retail for between four ninety nine and seven ninety nine. So there was a tremendous price-to-value relationship, you know, in Italian wines that made people even more willing to try them and more willing to even experience and experiment with things that they didn't know exactly what they were. But the cost of entry was so low and the experience was so rewarding, you know, that it attracted a lot of people. That started changing pretty rapidly uh, because Italian wines started getting popular not only in the United States, but really all over the world. They have huge markets in Switzerland. They have huge markets in Germany, uh, in many other uh, European countries. And so, you know, demand and supply, as always, you know, had a big influence on the pricing. And eventually those, those prices became more reflective of the intrinsic uh, quality of the wine. But back then, at the very beginning, they were real, real bargains. You built your portfolio on a lot of over-delivering on value producers in the South, which wouldn't have maybe been the obvious move. Yeah. You were know, in Apulia, you were in Sicily, you were in Sardinia, you were in Molite, yeah, and Abruzzo. Yeah. Well, you know, besides the fact that you were from that area, yeah. what led you to look in those areas for for reds that became staples of, of your portfolio? Italy is made up of uh, 21 regions. You can think of this region as you would think of, of states in, in this country. Except that here in the United States, uh, for the most part, a lot of the states are relatively homogeneous. In Italy, those regions are not homogeneous. Italy was not even a country until 1861. So the customs, the culture, the food, the wines of all those regions are very different. And it's not an understatement to say that Italian cuisine is very regional. That is exactly the truth. You know, the cuisine of Venice has very little to do with the cuisine of Piedmont. And yet the two are barely 200 miles apart. You know, but one was influenced by the sea. The other one was influenced by the French and you know, different uh, people who invaded Italy at different times or parts of Italy. So Italian cuisine today is very regional and it reflects the heritage of that particular region. So I wanted to have a wine portfolio that reflected that. You know, I wanted to have a wine portfolio that was clearly identified with all the main food regions in, in Italy. And so I started looking regionally. So th that was part of the concept. And once I started doing that, and I had a wine from Sicily. I said, well, that's great. I also need to have a wine from Sardinia, and a wine from Campania, and a wine from Calabria, and a wine from Apulia. And um, because not a lot of people were interested or even aware of Southern Italian wines at the time, a lot of the top estates in each region were still without an importer. So it was... Uh, you know, it was easier to gain producers of that uh, stature and of that level 
in those regions than it would be in Piedmont, in Tuscany, in the Veneto, where importers had, had already been tracking for a very long period of time and eventually we ended up with uh, great estates in those regions uh, as well. But the pioneering work that we did was really in central and uh, southern Italy. Uh, to this day, we are the only importer of wines from Molise in the United States, for example. So what were some of those early encounters like? What was it like meeting like Cosimo Torino in, in Apulia? I met um, Cosimo Torino at my first Italy in 1980. So this is 35 uh, Vinitalis ago. And uh, Vinitali back then was a very small show. Uh, it was nothing like what it is today and what it has become. It was uh, two pavilions. And a lot of those pavilions, rather than have individual booths from uh, a single producer, had a consortium or an association of producers, had a horseshoe-shaped table, basically, uh, where the producers were standing one next to the other. And uh, as an importer, if you went to the Barolo table, for example, you would have a chance to taste through 30 or 40 different Barolos as opposed to have to go to 30 or 40 individual producers. It must have changed the game for import. It really, really, really did. You know, it was, uh, it was a great way to gain an understanding of the different regions. You well, could go to one place, not drive around all day, and taste 30 Barolo. Yeah. And that was a new thing. It didn't yeah. exist and, before. And it didn't exist before. And I mean, Vinitaly had been in existence already for uh, about 10 years before I started going, but it had not grown very much. It exploded after that to what it is today, which is uh, an enormously large wine show like Vinexpo in uh, Bordeaux. Well, Taurino was one of the few producers from Apulia who had his own booth. And uh, in those days, Vinitali would uh, last a week as opposed to the four days that uh, it lasts uh, now. And uh, he watched me with my briefcase go up and down those two stands and uh, uh, those two pavilions and taste wine and talk to people. And um, on the very last day, he planted himself in the middle of this corridor where I was coming down. He spread out his arms, he spread out his legs, and he said, stop. He said, you've tasted everybody else's wine. Come and taste my wine. So I was um, taken aback by this kind of initiative and this kind of somewhat aggressive, but not really. I mean, you know, he was so genuine and so enthusiastic about the idea of showing his products that it did not come across as uh, overbearing in the least. So I sat down with him and uh, I started tasting his wines. I liked his wines. I liked the price to value relationships that those wines had. And uh, Nota Panaro. Nota Panaro was one and the Salicia Salentino was another one. And eventually, a few years later, he made a late harvest version of the Salicia Salentino called Patriglione. So he said, uh, so do you want to buy my wines? And I said, yes, but I want to have an exclusive for the United States. Keep in mind that in those days, we sold very little wine outside of New York and New Jersey, but I wanted to kind of plan for the future and make it a point that if we were going to work on his wine, when we were ready to go national, I wanted the, the wines to already be secure. So in order to appear that he was negotiating hard with me, he said, okay, but I want a contract 
that commits you to buying a certain amount of wine from me. So I was afraid of what was going to come down, but the quantities were very, very reasonable, well within what we could do just in New York and in New Jersey. And so we signed this uh, piece of paper, which is still hanging at the winery at Taurino. If you go there today, you'll see two things. You'll see a very large ceramic uh, panel that I gave him as a present when he built this new winery. It's a scene from the harvest made by an artisan in Sicily and on one of the wine baskets that is being used during the harvest, it says Taurino. So he loved that and it's still hanging. It's large. It's uh, like seven foot long by four feet high. So you'll see that. And next to that, you'll see framed this uh, initial contract, you know, that uh, we made in, uh, in 1980. And that's how, that's how we got started. And Taurino became very quickly a darling in, uh, in the wine trade because the price to value was so incredible on both the Inotar Panaro and the Salicio Salentino. And there was probably not a lot from Apulia at all. There was really not a lot at all in, in those days. Some of the other key and then long-standing relationships that you've had, a lot of them have been in the South. Of course, some of them have been in other areas too. But like La Brandy, I imagine that was an interesting time. Yes, uh, Librandi actually was uh, a friend of Taurino. Uh, they had the same consulting uh, analogist back then. And uh, when I told uh, Cosimo that I was going to look for somebody in Calabria, he called uh, Nicodemo Librandi. And as a matter of fact, drove me to Librandi the first time. And it's not that simple because from Apulia to Calabria, even though it's not far on the map, it takes about six hours to drive. But he did that for me. A lot of stop signs or... No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding around. <laughs> Not stop signs, but very uh, hard to navigate uh, roads, you know, small roads, a lot of curves and a lot of uh, slow moving traffic, trucks, you know, all of that. So um, that started my connection to Librandi, which is still going to this day. Now we're working with his children, and that's very gratifying, as well as being a kind of a signature description of what we had done as an importer for all these years. I like to work with families. I like to work with people that have their own family name on the label. They really care about the quality of what is in the bottle. And if there is ever a problem or an issue or anything that, that, that happens, they will listen and they will do their best to fix it and, and change it. And that has served me and wine very, very well over the years. You know, we're now working in many cases, in most cases, with second generation, the children or the people that I started to work with, and in, in a few cases, with the third generation. So when it came time to pick a Sicilian wine, how did you go about doing that? I mean, going back well, to where you were born. I got married in Sicily in 1975, and the wine that uh, was served at my wedding was uh, Regale Ali by Tasca di Almerita. So for me, there was always the objective. And uh, at the very beginning, uh, Tasca was not available. They had another importer. So I started with other Sicilian wines, but uh, I kept going back and going back until uh, the moment came when they were ready to make a change. And we've been working with them for over 25 years now. One of the other families you've had a long-standing relationship in the south of Italy is Master Berardino. How did you meet Antonio Master Berardino? I met Antonio Mastro Berardino in my early days here in New York. I was not only buying wine and doing the finances and everything else that needed to be done, but every chance I got, I was uh, selling wine and meeting customers and you know trying to become uh, visible. And so I would run into Antonio Mastro Berardino on the streets of New York, trying to sell wine to Italian restaurants. 
And it was uh, an inspiration, nothing less than that, to see such a stately and obviously knowledgeable and um, uh, important person, invisible person in the wine business, do exactly the same thing I was trying to do, which was to call on an account and open up a bottle of wine and try to explain that wine and tell the story of his family was incredibly inspiring to me. And so I was after Mastro Berardino for a very long time, but as you can imagine, so was every other importer in the United States, and we had to wait our turn, but eventually uh, we were able to make a deal with uh, Antonio's son, with uh, Piero, who is running the winery today. And uh, Antonio was still alive for a few years when we started, and I remember when we signed the contract that Mastro Berardino, he came out, he was already fairly old and kind of failing, but he came out and congratulated uh, both of us, you know, and said that he was happy to see that uh, this marriage had finally happened, as he stated it. And um, uh, and so, you know, there was the beginning of my relationship with Mastro Berardino. And uh, I was really, really sad uh, two years ago when Antonio passed away. You had some real strengths in the north and in central Italy as well as the south. And for instance, had a quite long relationship representing Giacosa. What is Bruno Giacosa like? Well, Bruno Giacosa is a quintessential man of Piemonte, is a man of his land. There are anecdotes about Bruno Giacosa that still send shivers down my spine. You know, he was, um, for most of his career, uh, buying grapes as opposed to have his own vineyards. Now he does. They, they had their own vineyards for maybe the last uh, 15 or 20 years. But he was considered the person, the man, the winemaker in Piedmont with the most knowledge, intimate knowledge of those vineyards. Because when he was a young man, before there were many automobiles, certainly before he had an automobile, he was walking from vineyard to vineyard, and eventually became a broker, and eventually sold grapes and wines, you know, to other people based on the reputation that he had gained about what were the best vineyards, what were the best practices, who were the best winemakers, and so on. And he started developing a reputation for integrity that has stuck with him to this day. And uh, when he eventually opened up his own uh, winery, uh, he had an immediate uh, following and a lot of success, uh, almost defying every cliche in the wine business that you have to be savvy in a marketing sense and you have to be people-oriented and so on. Uh, Giacosa, Bruno is not people-oriented. He is not social. You know, he speaks with great, uh, almost difficulty. You know, going out to dinner with him was incredibly challenging because, you know, sometimes uh, silence would would come in and would just stay there, and I would feel the need to make conversation with him, and he would reply yes and no, but not go much further than that. Not because he was unfriendly, because that's just the way he is. You know, he's very shy, very reserved. At the same time, when he says something, it's, it's usually something that is important and you better listen to what he's saying, whether he's talking about the vintage or he's talking about, you know, price levels of the grapes or whatever it is, you know, that the conversation is, is, um, uh, is taking you at that particular time. I think you need to listen to what Bruno has to say. But to be social, that's not his thing. I don't think he ever sold a bottle of wine in his life, even when he needed to sell wine. People would go to him 
and by the wine. Unfortunately, he suffered a stroke uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, he is now in his mid-80s. Uh, luckily, his mind didn't suffer, but uh, he has become somewhat uh, physically disabled and uh, is in a wheelchair and not particularly mobile. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, way life, uh, life goes, but the wines uh, were, were great and really enjoyed the 20 years that we worked with them. What was the influence of someone like Luigi Veronelli? Did you see people who really changed the game while you were bringing in wines? Yes. Uh, Luigi Veronelli was a friend of mine. And Luigi had the ability to communicate what he was feeling for that wine in a way that was almost poetry and that would resonate with people that were either listening to him on television and uh, radio or who were reading his articles and his books. He was poetic, you know, there was no, no other way to describe it. And he would, he would, um, uh, it would cause an emotional response in people that were reading his words. It would cause them to want to get up and call the local wine merchant and say, I want a bottle or I want six bottles of, of this wine. And so a lot of people in Italy and eventually, even though he didn't speak English, you know, but uh, it started being translated in, in other languages. So not just in Italy, but especially in Italy, got interested in small production and authentic wines through Veronelli. So I think the Italian wine world has an enormous debt to Luigi Veronelli. Were you always selling to a broad-based American consumer, or in the beginning was it mostly selling to Italians? Well, selling to Italians was uh, obviously a key part of what we did because the market was uh, so large. And I'm not talking about Italian consumers. I'm talking about Italian restaurants primarily. And obviously, once the word got out, the wine boy had an important wine portfolio, we became a magnet for people who were interested in selling those wines. And a lot of those guys and girls were Italian. So, you know, wine boy became a little bit of a uh, uh, graduate school, if you will, you know, for people that really wanted to make a career in, uh, in Italian wine. So we sold, um, uh, we sold always to restaurants. And then at the very beginning, what would often happen would be in the smaller markets to uh, have one or two or three, let's say a small number of um, anchor stores that would carry a very wide selection of our wines, where if we needed to get a new item in distribution, they would cooperate with us and help us to do that. And they would promote those wines uh, they would promote uh, the wines themselves, the region, the importer. They would really try to be our ambassadors in, uh, in many different markets. They would go over to Italy, visit the wineries, get themselves familiar with uh, what they were selling, uh, meeting the winemakers, being in the cellar, often going and working the harvest in one of the vineyards. So when they would come back, you know, they knew a lot about those products and because of the three-tier system in the United States, if that tier is missing, if the retailer doesn't have the knowledge and the expertise in selling those wines, they can be the greatest wines in the world. You know, consumers don't know what they are. You know, they're just going to stay on a, on a shelf and, and sit there. 
uh, that didn't happen. You know, we had a lot of friends and a lot of ambassadors all, all over the country. And uh, despite the fact that for the most part, we were selling appellations that were not well known, uh, those wines quickly developed a following and became at least, you know, part of the Italian wine uh, landscape, you know, that got larger and larger as people understood. There was not just Chianti, it was not just Brunello, it was not just Barolo and Amarone and the basics, but the Italian wine world was really big. We have over 800 indigenous autochthonous grape varieties in Italy, which make it very, very interesting. And as the wine world turned and changed and sommelier came on the scene and they started to get interested in those wines, you know, it started being a, an acceleration uh, of the process. And today it's almost like the more esoteric and the more off the map that wine is, the more it's going to be easier to introduce it, you know. Speaking of the Italian wine landscape on the producer side, it seems like a key relationship for you over the length of your entire career was Cotarella. Yes, my relationship with uh, Ricardo Cotarella has um, has grown for the last 35 years, literally since the very beginning of uh, Winebo. Ricardo in those days was a young winemaker for a producer in Orvieto. Eventually, he started up his own winery called Falesco with his brother Renzo Cotarella, who is still a partner, but he is also today the CEO of uh, Antinori and uh, directly responsible for production at uh, Antinori as well. And so we started importing his uh, white wines, or uh, Estestest was uh, one of them, and still is. And then uh, Ricardo wanted to uh, measure himself in producing red wines, of which there was very little market uh, in general in those days, but especially from central Italy, just was not considered, uh, with the exception of Tuscany, of course, you know, a prime area, Lazio, the region around Rome, or Umbria, uh, was known for white wines. Lazio was known for Frascati, Umbria was known for Orvieto and Estestes, but nobody was talking about red wines. Uh, but I told him we would support him, and we did. And uh, his red wine program became very ambitious and very successful with the Vitiano and the Montiano and other wines. And uh, Ricardo went on to become a very famous consultant as well. He always kept his winery uh, and has got most of his family members, his daughter, his nieces, and so on, and their husbands involved in the process, either on the marketing side or the production side. And that uh, allowed him to become a very well-known consultant. And um, uh, we started following his growth in that, uh, in that effort and ended up representing many of the wineries that uh, he started consulting for and still do to this day. We represent uh, Montevetrano and Terra di Lavoro from Campania, uh, De Maio Norante from uh, Molise, Morgante from Sicily, and many, many others, De Castris in Apulia, and so on. And uh, just picked up a new one called uh, Vespa. Uh, he is a very famous uh, journalist in uh, Italy who recently launched his own uh, production from a winery he has in Apulia. So we work with him as well. But beyond that, that's on the professional side. Uh, Ricardo and I also became very close uh, personally. You're about the same age. We're about the same age. He's uh, two years older than I am, but uh, we're personal friends. I went to his daughter's uh, wedding and to his niece's uh, weddings. He came to New York for just 48 hours for my 50th birthday just to be with me. 
and we, you know, we speak all the time and kind of have a friendship, you know, that goes beyond the business that we do together. And it's a lot of business, but it goes well beyond that. It seems like you always had a very keen and ahead of the curve vision of the business side of your business. Did it evolve on the wine side? Did your palate change? Did you look for different things? Did you find yourself changing over a decade, two decades, three decades? How did that happen? On the wine side, uh, I definitely changed and uh, evolved, uh, meaning that I started to understand very early on the value of what eventually became my criteria for selecting wine. I mentioned before I wanted to work with families. That, to me, has been incredibly important, both on a professional and a personal level, working with second and third generation families that we started working with, you know, at the very beginning of my career. Started to like wines that had minimal intervention, wines that were either unfined or, and or unfiltered, unless there was some sort of an issue that needed to be taken care of, but not as a preventive measure. So I started discouraging our winemakers, you know, from going in that uh, direction. I told them I would tolerate sediment, for example, because the cost of eliminating sediment completely is unacceptable. You know, you eliminate sediment and you also strip the wine of most of its uh, flavors and interest uh, profile. So there was a there was a change that came with uh, with experience, and and that happened uh, early on. So there was a change. Then there was a change towards uh, southern Italy. I think I was lucky to have this intuition that this was going to be a big area for Italian wine and a big market in the United States. Keep in mind also that a lot of the immigration into the United States from Italy happened from southern Italy, whether people were coming from Sicily, they were coming from Naples, they were coming from Calabria, they were coming from Apulia. The poorer regions. The poorer regions. That's exactly right. Not people from the wealthy regions of Lombardy, Veneto, Piedmont, Liguria, and so on. So eventually some of these people became restaurateurs. Italians have always a strong affection and a strong tie to their ancestral land. So when Weinberg showed up, you know, with uh, being the only importer of wines from Calabria for a good number of years and wines from Molise, wines from Abruzzo, that resonated, you know, with, uh, with these people. And we have a huge market for Librandi in Iowa, for example, of all places, because Iowa has always been home to a number of immigrants from, uh, from Calabria and has a good number of Calabrian uh, restaurants. Uh, this is just one example. Detroit is the same way for Librandi. So, you know, it was interesting to see this business grow, not only in the obvious places, you know, New York, Washington, Boston, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, but also in the smaller cities, in the more obscure names on, on the map. So aside from Italy, you're also very early in the game in Oregon. That is correct. We started working, I want to say probably 30 years ago with David Adelsheim as his distributor in uh, New York and New Jersey at that time, and now in more states where we have distribution operations. And David was one of those pioneers who would um, get you involved. He wouldn't stop until a number of us went to Oregon and visited him and walked the vineyards and saw what he was doing and came back here becoming his ambassadors and becoming his uh, speaker in the marketplace. So we were 
truly, uh, if not the first, certainly among the very, very first distributors of Oregon wines in New York and in uh, New Jersey. And to this day, uh, we work with Alsheim and we work with other Oregon winers as well, like uh, Archery Summit, for example, is another one and others. And, you know, there was another lesson. Uh, wine didn't have to come from famous places. You know, new regions could emerge. New regions could make really exciting wines. And Oregon was a big lesson because Pinot Noir is so fickle and so difficult. And a lot of people tried in many different parts of the world and failed. And yet here was little Oregon, you know, that was making really, really interesting wines. So that was the beginning of many experiments in wines from different regions of the world. Uh, we started working with wines from Uruguay at a very early stage, uh, wines from Lebanon. We are one of the largest uh, distributors of wines from Greece to this day, and so on and so forth. Wines from Eastern Europe, Macedonia, Serbia. And you made some key relationships in California with Duckhorn and others. I imagine that was quite successful. It was. Uh, um, 1980 was really the inflection point for California wine as well. There was California wine made before, of course, but the emergence of boutique, smaller California wineries really happened around the very late 70s, beginning of the 80s. And all those people needed distributors, and we were able to become their distributor. Uh, we were a young, small company, but with a strong reputation for quality wines, interesting wines. So we were Duckhorn's first distributor. Uh, we were Schaefer's first distributor and still are to this day. We worked over the years with many, many different California wineries. Some stayed small and some grew to be much larger. But over time, you know, things change. And if wineries get large, uh, eventually perhaps they get sold, either in total or a piece of it. Uh, sometimes there are generational changes, you know, that take place. So California uh, business for us has been uh, gratifying, has been important, has been uh, great over the years. But it has also shifted a number of times as, you know, for example, we used to be the Newton distributor in this market and Newton sold to Clico. So we lost that. We used to be the Sonoma Cutrea distributor and they sold to Brown Foreman. And eventually we had to give that up and so on and so forth. That but, must have been holding aces. Having Sonoma Couture back then must have been a yeah, really nice Sonoma thing. Yeah, Sonoma Couture, uh, they left us uh, six years after the acquisition uh, because they knew the kind of work that we were doing, and most of it was on-premise, and it was very, very important. Because they uh, used to be work. allocated to just on-premise. It, used to, it be, used to be really hard to get. It used to be really, really hard to get. That's right. So, you know, it kind of, uh, New York is a non-franchise market, so, you know, uh, people can come and go as they please. And... Uh, never uh, held those things uh, personally. I mean, we knew that people had to make decisions that were uh, proper for their business, and that's fine. You know, we enjoyed the relationships that we had for all the years that uh, uh, they listed. And as if somebody went, we just rolled up our sleeves and went to look for somebody else. You know, recently we picked up uh, Trafeden, for example, which is wonderful uh, winery and wonderful family and so on. Has that really been a difference between California and Italy in that the Italian families had less proclivity to sell, that they kept it in the family? Absolutely. Yeah. Because when you look at the length of time that you've had agencies. Uh, uh, absolutely. It's a cultural thing. You know, in Italy, it's almost inconceivable for a child of a winery owner not to go into the family business. 
In the United States, it happens all the time. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. If they don't, the parents at some point- They gotta sell. They gotta sell, right? So I would say that that is one of the defining um, characteristics, not just for us, but in general, of uh, doing business in Europe and doing business in California. So in terms of New York, New Jersey, eventually you buy out Peter Matt and Mr. Haas, and then eventually you take on Kermit Lynch as a French wine supplier. What was all that like? When um, Bob Haas uh, left the ownership of uh, Winebow, we stayed on as the Vigno Brands uh, distributor for a number of years. Uh, and eventually Bob started to phase out and started hiring uh, new management and you know, everybody's got their own idea of how to do business and what their priorities are. And eventually we worked with them for a number of years, but eventually we went our own way. And that left a big hole for us because uh, uh, Vineyard Brands had been our source for French wine, especially Burgundy and Alsace and Loire, you know, not Bordeaux so much because they don't play in that sandbox too much you know but um we needed to we needed to fill that uh, gap and uh, i was always uh, impressed by kermit and his uh, philosophy and the selections that he had and so i called on kermit and told him what our situation was and we were able to make a deal and start representing kermit lynch again initially in new york and new jersey we now work with him in several different states and uh, has been a very fruitful and very long relationship. I am personally very fond of uh, Kermit Lynch, both as a wine man, but also as a human being. Uh, he's a very interesting and um, cultured and nuanced uh, person, and I like people like that. So it's been, uh, it's been great you know, to get to know him and uh, work with him and his company. And just to tell you a little bit, I recently retired from Winebow on June 30. And um, I came back from Corsica yesterday. I was there for a week and a half. And in this week and a half, I went to see six of Kermit Lynch producers in Corsica because I'd never been there. I wanted to learn about Corsica wines. And I couldn't think of going to see anybody else other than Kermit's producers. Well, know? he's got some really good Corsican producers. He does. So that's, a, that's a pretty strong lineup. He does. He does. And, uh, um, you know, so retired or not, I mean, wine is... Uh, part of my life and will continue to be part of my life. And I enjoy the learning experience. I enjoy the, I enjoy the people side, you know, meeting the winemakers and sometimes breaking bread uh, with them. And yeah, has been, has been very, very interesting. What does it take to be a, a long-term player in the game? So we spoke before about the importance of family relationships. Those relationships become more than that over time. It's hard to call them friendships, you know, because there is so much business, you know, in the middle. But in a way, it is a friendship. If nothing else, they become relationships that are based on trust, that are based on kind of developing a compatible world outlook, if you will, uh, over, over time. So when I called our producers and said, you know what? We are starting to be in a recession. It looks like it's going to be a nasty one. Uh, the financial world has pretty much imploded. Banks are not lending. It's going to be tough for a while, guys. They knew that I was not negotiating. I was not 
trying to gain an advantage that I was concerned for our business, but also for their business. And so having those kind of relationships in place makes it possible to solve the issues that are external to the winery and the importer in a way that is, first of all, long-term oriented, and second, is constructive, that looks for a solution as opposed to look for the problem. Because if you look for the solution, eventually you come out of that and you come out stronger because the field in the meantime has gotten a little bit less crowded and the marginal players have faded away. And this is very much what's happening today. So how do we get through? Well, you know, in a recession, uh, even if they had a short crop, even if they had, uh, you know, other issues like inflation in Italy that was always higher than in the United States, they would hold prices as long as they could. And at the same time, if there was a period when the dollar took a very strong bounce and gained a lot of ground versus the euro, and they had held prices for a number of years, even though we may have had an agreement, you know, that those prices were going to stake for another year or two years, we would usually give them something back so that they would understand that it was a two-way street and that nobody was trying to take advantage of the other party. And yes, we have contracts and yes, we have commercial agreements and all the things that are important in a commercial relationship. But at the same time, I think that wine was always had a kind of relationship with those producers that went well beyond that. And it wasn't just me, you know, for the last uh, 15 years, I've been uh, traveling to Italy with a team. Four of us have been going over on every single trip. One of them is my nephew. So he's got my same last name, Giuseppe Locascio. And um, producers have gotten to know all of us. And so eventually when I decided to step back and it was a very long transition, uh, just so that people would stay comfortable and would stay engaged, you know. Eventually, when I finally decided to retire, it was it was fine for for them and with them, and they know that I'm always a phone call away if they need something, if they need advice or whatever they need, you know, I'm always there for them. What's the next chapter for you? You're still very vibrant and health, and so what's going to be next for Leonardo? My retirement is so recent that uh, I've hardly had the time to really get my bearings and my thinking uh, together. So the answer to your question is that I don't quite know. Um, and uh, I still have an investment in the wine business. It's a winery in Argentina that I'm a partner in with uh, one of my buddies from business school. And uh, we've been developing this project uh, for the last uh, several years. So I don't really know. I mean, I know that uh, wine is part of uh, my life. I know that I enjoy the educational uh, side of wine immensely. Even on this last trip, uh, I was asked to speak twice, uh, once in Milan and once in Sicily about the American wine market, which I was happy to do. This is something I really, really like. And um, so I, you know, there's going to be involvement in the wine business. It doesn't have to be for profit uh, necessarily, but I really like the educational side. Um, so we'll see what uh, the future will bring, but there there's going to be wine in there somewhere. If you saw a younger person coming up now and they came to you and said, I really respect your career. You've done so much. I'd like to work maybe with Italian wine, maybe with wine. What are some of the things that you would say to them as key things to remember? What I would say to somebody who wants to get started in the wine business would be to learn first. 
rather than learn on the job, if you will. And to me, the fastest and most productive way of doing that learning is to work in a retail shop. Most uh, retailers today have really competent people on the floor they can steer a younger person uh, towards a learning experience. They can make sure that uh, he or she gets uh, into all the tastings that distributors put together, and there is so many of them. He can make sure that these younger people get uh, exposed to the winemakers they come to work the market and present uh, their wines. And so a young person, I think, needs to understand that there is great wine made all over the world these days not just in France, not just in California, not just in Italy, but really many different places. And I think that once you understand that, you also understand that price to value relationships are important in wines because consumers may not be sophisticated, may not know all the 800 grape varietals, you know, that are in Italy, but they do know when they're getting a bargain, you know, and nobody doesn't like to get a bargain. Every wine consumer dream is to find the bottle of wine that over delivers, that costs $10 and tastes like a $30 bottle of wine, you know, and there are wines like that out there. And one interesting effect of the last recession is that people, consumers didn't really stop drinking wine, didn't even drink less wine, but they lowered the price point. You know, if their daily budget was $25, maybe they went to 15 And if, if he was 15 maybe they went to 10 And they understood that you don't need to spend a lot of money to drink great wine. And this is something that has stayed with these consumers for a very long time, well past the time that the recession ended. And I'm not sure that it's even ever going to get back to what it was before. There will always be a place, you know, for great wines that are expensive, but that is different to say than wine has to be expensive in order to be good, because that is just not true. You know, there is plenty of great wine around the world, you know, that is well-priced and within reach of most consumers' uh, pocketbook. So a young person getting into the wine business, I think, needs to learn those two things. He needs to learn from an almost technical standpoint, if you will, the different wines that are made, that, that are imported, and know what the competition is for at least the main appellations, and also learn to recognize a wine that is ranks high on the price-to-value scale. Leonardo Lacascio, he was one of the founders of Winebow. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Leonardo Lacascio of Winebow. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.